Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Fatherly affection remonstrated with him in the severest terms. Perhaps Edward had forgotten the dire pronouncement that his father would make him an example to sons everywhere to obey their fathers. Perhaps Edward II himself had forgotten he had said it. What is undoubtedly true is that now the tables were reversed. Edward was king and his father diminished. Indeed, Edward II had officially been dead for the last eleven years, and Edward himself had advocated that his father should continue to be treated as such. Both men probably experienced some feelings of guilt, and we may especially suspect Edward III did, as he had sanctioned the execution of his father's beloved half-brother and refused to acknowledge his father's continued existence. But he could explain it now. He had kept his father alive by sacrificing his uncle. He had punished Mortimer. Moreover, he had won at Halladon Hill, whereas his father had lost at Bannockburn. That was why he was king and his father now a penniless hermit. The reasons for picking December as the time when he would meet his father again were due in part to Edward's great demonstration of imperial authority at Herc in October, but more importantly because it would be a time for the old king finally to meet his grandchildren. Not only were little Isabella and Joan at Antwerp, on the 29th of November 1338 Philippa gave birth to a son. Edward was overjoyed and promised the man who brought in the news a reward of £100. He gave the child the Arthurian name Lionel, which he himself had adopted as a nickname in his youth. It may have been conceived as a tribute to his dead brother John, or with the idea that Lionel would be a lifelong companion to his elder brother, or maybe it was an idea of how he himself had come through the test of living under the shadow of Mortimer's authority. We do not know, but given the stories of brotherhood and suffering with which this name was associated in the Arthurian cycle, and given Edward's own earlier adoption of the name, it was probably not selected just because he liked the sound, especially not in his father's presence. We have only one vague possibility as to what was actually said at this meeting. Father and son seem to have discussed Edward I. It is noticeable that every year for the rest of his life after this meeting, Edward III ordered the wax torches to be renewed around the tomb of the old king at Westminster, this being done on or about the anniversary of his death. It is not possible to be certain, but it seems likely that Edward II had reflected over the years on his confrontational relationship with his own father, and hoped that his son would make amends with the old man on his behalf, if only in the way he was treated in death. We have no further definite location for Edward II after December 1338. It is likely he stayed for the Christmas feast, always a lavish event in Edward's court, costing that year £172, including £56 on cooking and probably for the churching of Philippa at the end of December. Nicolonius Fieschi probably left Antwerp the following February. There is no further reference to Francesco Forzetti until October 1340, when he was back in England dealing with the Italian wool business. We do not know whether Edward himself took charge of his father from this point, or whether he remained in the custody of the Peruzzi as security for some of the loans they still hoped to reclaim from Edward. All we may say is that wherever he was taken... He lived out the rest of his days in peace. Edward's journey to the Low Countries alarmed Philip. 
In August, he responded by gathering an army and going to Saint-Denis to take the semi-mystical ceremonial war banner of the Oriflamme. He expected Edward to invade immediately. At that moment, Edward was in no position to attack, but this did not make Philip any more comfortable. He tried to shift the confrontation to England, sending fifty ships to Southampton. Several thousand men landed there on a Sunday while all the inhabitants were at church. They sacked the town, and as the inhabitants left the churches, they ran away. The French took what they wanted at their leisure. It is recorded that where they found poor people, they killed them, and where they caught any women, they raped them. And where they caught a man of wealth or status, they hanged him in his own house. Then they set the whole town on fire. Guernsey, too, was taken and its garrisons killed. For Edward, worst of all, was the capture of an English wool fleet. Five ships, including one of the most prestigious, the St. George, and two of his largest and most important, the Christopher and his flagship, the Edward. The sailors manning the royal vessels surrendered after being outnumbered. Even though Edward's personal clerks were among them, they were all thrown overboard and drowned. Philip was not the only leader threatened by Edward's move to the Low Countries. The Pope, too, was disappointed to see Edward cross to Brabant. As he shrewdly observed, such a move would force him to start paying his allies, and he would soon want to see some military gain in return for his investment. But what really infuriated the Pope was Edward's alliance with Ludwig, the heretic. Regardless of the fact that Philip also would have enlisted Ludwig's support if he had been able to, the furious Pope took sides. He wrote to Philip informing him that he had heard from someone who had been at Koblenz that Edward was planning to attack France the following May. The Pope added that he suspected also that this information might be deliberate misinformation, and so he urged Philip to be cautious. To Edward, he was less cordial, barely concealing his indignation despite his considerable diplomatic skills. He pointed out to Edward again that John XXII had excommunicated Ludwig for good reason, he added that he had offered to take Ludwig back into the church if only he would give up his support for the anti-pope and be reconciled to the Avignon papacy, but Ludwig was adamant. In this light, the Pope was amazed that Edward was prepared to go to Germany, risking excommunication. He stressed how hard he had worked to maintain peace between Philip and Edward, sending cardinals to negotiate with them. He called on Edward to free himself from the bonds and snares in which he is involved by his relations with Ludwig. At the same time, the 1st of November, he wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury asking him to intercede and show the king how wrong he was to accept an office from an excommunicated ruler. He also wrote to the archbishops and bishops in the Low Countries and Germany forbidding them to swear to serve Edward. He also copied all these letters to the cardinals supposed to be negotiating between the two kings. As demonstrations of Benedict's anger went, this was severe. Edward's principal worry lay in England. As soon as he had set sail, three years of good harvests, combined with a lack of silver in the money supply, had disastrous results. Deflation, crashing prices set in. With money being sucked out of the kingdom and Edward's officers impounding wool supplies for shipment to the low countries in Italian markets and the royal purveyors seizing whatever they wanted under cover of it being for the king's campaigns, the country was fast approaching an economic crisis. Coming on top of the three-year taxation granted in 1337, this meant social catastrophe. And then the winter came, and with it came rain and cold. Where there had been plenty of supplies but no money, now there was neither money nor food. Edward's reaction to his logistic and economic problems was to blame his advisers. As he saw it, it was not his role to understand why supplies were late or why money could not be raised. It was his role to enforce discipline on his enforcers, so that his instructions were carried out. In a fit of anger, he sacked his treasurer, Robert Woodhouse. This was most unfortunate, as Woodhouse was probably the man responsible for managing what would yet to prove to be a turnaround in Edward's ability to raise money from wool in England. Woodhouse wrote to John Mollins lamenting the way he had been treated, and expressly mentioning the king's lack of gratitude for his efforts. It was in a similarly angry mood that Edward responded to the Pope's letter, appointing the highest status embassy possible to treat with Philip, Montague, Richard Berry, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sir Geoffrey Le Scrope and Bishop Burgersh, but expressly forbidding them to address Philip as King of France. This was not the same as claiming the throne, as he had done briefly in October 1337, but it was close. 
Under severe pressure on all fronts, including his own companions who doubted his strategy, Edward was beginning to show some of the character traits of his father. He was acting in a high-handed fashion, yet not more so than most kings of the Middle Ages, but like his father he rounded on men who were genuinely trying to help him. His utter faith in his own royal irreproachability, coupled with his frustration with the faults of his advisers, threatened to cloud his judgment. When frustrated, Edward tended to try to force his will on those around him. Woodhouse was just one example. Another example is his order in May that all debts to him were not to be paid in instalments in the traditional manner, but all were to be paid instantly and in full, an impossible demand. It is possible to argue that other examples are to be found in his high-handed appropriation of various rights in England, largely in order to raise money. If an heiress was unmarried, whether a spinster or a widow, Edward assumed the rights of appointing her husband, partly to raise money and partly to use the revenue from women's lands to provide an income for his most trusted war commanders. Lands of felons, which had formerly reverted to their feudal lord, were confiscated outright by the king and used to endow the new and rising members of the nobility. Priories dependent on foreign monasteries had their revenues temporarily confiscated and handed over to provide incomes for Edward's associates. To those who gathered for the Parliament at Westminster in February 1339, it was worrying that Edward was demanding more from them in taxes and yet not even prepared to return to England to meet them and hear their grievances. Having empowered the commons and given them a voice, he was now running a very great risk by failing to listen to them. It was at this point that Philip invaded Aquitaine for the second time. Believing the Pope's advice that Edward's campaign in the Combrésie would not begin until May, and probably trusting his own spies' validation of this information, he judged it safe to withdraw his forces from the north. Having done so, he threw them into a sustained onslaught on the English forces in the southwest. It was an inspired strategy. Edward was unable to take his army across France and unable to mobilise a seaborne force to defend the duchy. He had also failed strongly to support those who had previously resolutely held out for him, so that their resolve was weaker on this second occasion. He had only one option left to him, to invade France without delay, diverting Philip's attention from the southwest. He summoned all his allies to gather for an invasion on the 18th of December, but, to his great anger, the response was not even lukewarm. They had settled their minds on a war in May 1339, and nothing would move them to risk everything now, in winter. The strategic drawbacks of the alliance were now apparent. It was holding Edward back from attacking Philip, it was preventing him from taking action against the French fleet, and it was quickly bankrupting him. And it was sapping his moral authority too. It would not be long before he was reduced to little more than a paymaster for the German Confederacy. He had lost papal support, and it infuriated Philip into attacking England itself as well as English trade. His own kingdom was on the brink of economic turmoil, and he was in grave danger of parliamentary opposition. But even if Edward could now see that he had been wrong, and that he had made mistakes, he was aware that to give up on the alliance now would be a waste of all he had invested. In order to maintain a degree of pressure on Philip through the alliance, it was important for him not to lose his nerve. Edward's saving grace was that unlike his father, he had a sense of purpose, and it was a noble purpose by the definitions of the time. He also had a self-belief which allowed him to cope with the problems which he had brought upon himself. He could rant at his ministers, he could sack them, and he could even order the council back in England to stop paying the civil servants, which he did to their shock and indignation, but while he kept focused on England's war with France, and while he continued to inspire those around him, no one was in a position to question him or take action against him. It was this focus, confidence and leadership which now he used to draw himself out of his predicament. He marched to Brussels with his army and threw himself into negotiations for the campaign. When these had proved futile, he declared to his allies that if they would not fight, then he would. He would lead his army into France and do battle with or without them. He set down his terms for renewing negotiations in a final ultimatum. He demanded five things, that the losses on either side should be made good, that friends of either king could freely pass over the lands of both kings, that merchandise should be freely transported, that the king of France should offer no further help to the Scots, and that Philip should restore those parts of Gascony which he had recently occupied. It was not an excessive list. The first three were merely normal affairs. The Pope, still in a hostile mood towards England, declined to accept the fourth point, 
advising merely a truce between England and Scotland, and preferred not to comment on the fifth point. King Philip refused to accept the ultimatum outright. Edward, having made up his own mind, and seeing the Pope and Philip practically united in their opposition to English interests, now put his own grievances to the Pope and the College of Cardinals in a long letter dated the 16th of July. He stressed the dangers of war, asserted that he loved the ways of peace, as God knows, but claimed that Philip, whom he described as his prosecutor, had illicitly occupied the throne of France and therefore threatened war. His basis for this was that although a woman was barred by Roman law from occupying the throne, this bar only applied to the woman herself and not her male offspring. If the bar attended to her male offspring, then Jesus had no right to be described as of the line of David, as his mother Mary, bearer of God's child, was the parent through which the claim descended. As Edward was the nephew of the last king, and Philip was a cousin, he had a prior claim, as Philip's was collateral. Contrary to popular belief, his claim had absolutely nothing to do with Salic law, a local land inheritance law whose relevance was pretended by French writers in the next century. Edward went on to state that he had done nothing to provoke Philip, and that he deplored the invasion of Aquitaine and France's support for the Scottish nationalists. He stressed how wronged he felt. The letter is very revealing, especially the sentences immediately following this claim of self-defence. Edward claimed that, We only make a shield against him who levelled a deadly blow at our head. At this he storms, Holy Father. He storms, is uneasy, and complains. He who sought by his subtle devices to find us unadvised and unprepared. But according to the theory of war, which teaches that the best way to avoid the inconvenience of war is to pursue it away from one's own country, it is more sensible for us to fight our notorious enemy in his own realm, with the joint power of our allies, than it is to wait for him at our own doors. Here we see the fundamental principle of Edward's strategy clearly spelled out, taking the fight into France protected England. When 20th century historians came to assess the profit and loss account of the English during the Hundred Years' War, they completely ignored this element of his strategy, only counting Edward's territorial conquests and losses. But Edward could win and lose in France and have nothing material to show for his troubles at the end of the day and still would have achieved something because he had protected England from French attack. In this same letter, Edward stressed that the more he thought about Philip paying for an army out of money originally gathered to fight the crusade, the more it pained him. Benedict had granted a clerical subsidy for the crusade and another for the defence against Ludwig and permitted Philip to use both to fight the English, which rankled with Edward. But no matter how interesting and revealing the letter was, Benedict was having none of it. In keeping with his new policy of favouring the French, he did not even reply. Edward marched into France on the 20th of September, 1339. Some of his allies followed him, Ludwig did not. The Duke of Brabant was still in negotiations with Philip. Promises for payments were made, promises to leave hostages to ensure final payment were added, and Edward himself was forced to promise that he would remain in the Low Countries as security for the debts he had incurred. The cardinals who had tried hard to bring Edward to accept Philip's absolute rule in France and his right to intervene in Scotland remained with him. On the first night, Sir Geoffrey Le Scrope led one of them, Bertrand de Montfazet, Cardinal Deacon of St. Mary in Aquiro, up a tall tower, showing him the result of the first day's work. It was a dark, moonless night, and as he looked out it was clear that every village for fifteen miles in every direction was on fire. The cardinal was reminded of something he had once declared to Edward in his negotiations. The kingdom of France is surrounded by a silken thread which all the power of England will not suffice to break. Scrope said calmly to the cardinal, Does it not seem to you that the silken thread encompassing France has broken? Seeing the terrible outcome of the invasion, the cardinal grew faint, staggered, and collapsed. Edward's strategy was simple. If he could bring Philip to battle and defeat him, then he would gain glory, win his arguments over Scotland and Aquitaine, and limit his liabilities to his German allies. Hence the utmost destruction of France was undertaken. He besieged the town of Cambrai and destroyed as much land and as many villages as he could. But Philip did not give battle. Reactions were mixed. The Dukes of Brabant joined Edward at the end of September, but the young Count of Hainault deserted him and joined Philip. Further delays would mean further expense, further doubt in his resolution, and inevitably more defections. 
Edward had no option but to go forward and to take the fight to the French army, which was more than double the... including his allies' troops. With caution, he advanced directly towards Peron, where the massive French army had gathered. On the 14th of October, Edward brought his army within a mile of the French. Everything he stood for and believed in, chivalry, glory and royalty, divine support and the prophecies that he would be a great conqueror, was about to be put to the test. But in order to implement the military strategies he had learnt in Scotland, he needed to force the French to attack him, and in order to withstand an attack by superior numbers, he needed to draw his men up in a particularly well-defended situation, so he could catch the French in the crossfire. Although he had found the French and they were ready to do battle, Edward was not in a well-defended position. His smaller army was in fact exposed. He had no option but to withdraw. In the ensuing discussions about future strategy, the German allies declared they were running short of supplies. They wanted to go home. Edward had not waited a whole year on the continent simply to withdraw at the first onset of his allies' fear and hunger. He had held back from encountering the French in a weakly defended position, but his resolution to do battle went far beyond this one encounter. He reinforced his original strategy, sending out the Earls of Salisbury, Derby and Northampton to destroy whatever they could. He also sent Sir John of Hainault, whose men stormed into the town of Origny, looting, burning and destroying. A Benedictine nunnery was looted and the nuns themselves raped. Sir John then proceeded to Guise, which he burnt. In the castle at Guise was his daughter, Jeanne, married to the heir of the Count of Blois, a Frenchman. Jeanne pleaded with her father to save the lands and heritage of the Blois family, but Sir John had his orders, and he carried them out mercilessly. Those who fled were hunted down in the woods by the Lord of Faucamont. More than a dozen villages and towns were utterly wasted by the English troops in the next two or three days. The destruction would have made Cardinal Bertrand faint again, but the result was precisely what Edward wanted. A messenger from Philip came to him at La Flamangrie, offering him to do battle on a certain day, either the 21st or 22nd of October, in a place unencumbered by rivers, walls or earthworks. It was now down to Edward to choose the site of the battle. He chose carefully, a place between La Flamangrie and La Capelle on the evening of the 22nd of October. The huge French army was just four miles away. He and his advisers had one major strategy in their minds, the tactics which had proved so effective at Duplin Moor and Halidon Hill. They would invite the traditional charge of mounted men at them, and they would situate their archers on either side to destroy the charge. Edward's position had a dense wood on one flank and a slope in front of him, which would naturally reduce the speed of the French attack. On the morning of the 23rd, the king and his men attended mass, and then set about the final preparations for the battle. All knights were ordered to dismount, regardless of the fighting practices of their respective leaders. Their horses and baggage were placed in a small wood behind the three battalions of men. Trenches were dug to protect the archers from a direct charge. Then the English and their allies formed up in three battalions. The first and largest, including the English household knights, was commanded by Edward himself. The second, composed mainly of men from the Low Countries, was commanded by the Duke of Gelderland and Sir John of Hainault. The third was commanded by the Duke of Brabant. On the wing was another force, commanded by Sir Lawrence Hastings, whom Edward now created Earl of Pembroke, the Earl of Warwick, Lord Barclay, and Sir John Mullins. The express purpose of this small battalion was to hold the rear and to rally the Germans if they tried to desert. When all was ready, Edward mounted a humble palfrey and rode along the lines, with Robert d'Artois, Sir Reginald Cobham and Sir Walter Manny, making knights of valiant men and shouting out exhortations to all the troops not to dishonour themselves or him in the forthcoming battle. Then Edward and his companions took their positions at the front of the English household knights, with banners held aloft and pennons flying above each battalion. Nothing happened. Morning passed, noon came. The French army, restless, sent up such a great shout at the sight of a hare running across the ground in front of them that the Count of Hainault, at the rear of the army, thinking the attack was about to begin, knighted fourteen men in preparation for the battle. Croissard took great delight in noting that they were thereafter called Knights of the Hare. Such was his embarrassment at this faux pas that the Count withdrew his forces. 
A little later, a letter arrived from the king of Jerusalem and Sicily, supposedly telling Philip that he had consulted the stars to tell Philip's fortune, and the prognostication was that Philip should never risk doing battle with Edward directly, for he would always lose. More serious were the discussions raging among the advisers gathered around Philip. The trenches dug in front of the English ranks were so deep, said some, that they would not be able to sustain their charge. Others argued that Philip was obliged to give battle, for it would be dishonourable to withdraw now. Dishonour or not, it was those who advocated withdrawal who prevailed. The danger to France was too great. Philip agreed, and ordered the building of his own defences to protect his army in their current position. There would be no battle. Edward was let down by both his enemy and by his allies. The latter assured him that they thought that he had won the moral victory as Philip had gone back on his promise to fight. But Edward knew that that was not true. The victory was as much Philip's, for seeing that no battle was to take place, the Allies now began to withdraw. Edward had no option but to follow them. The only loser of the battle, the battle that never was, was Edward. Edward's lack of success was not obvious to those who were with him on the campaign but his failure to make significant inroads into France was soon magnified by a string of other calamities. The Scots had recovered practically all of Edward's hard-won Scottish lands, including Cooper Castle, the county of Fife, and the strategically important castle of Perth, which Sir Thomas Uhtred was forced to surrender on the 16th of August after a hard siege. Worse, while Edward had been facing the French army in October 1339, his Regency Council in England had been facing the anger of Parliament. High prices, high taxation and widespread suffering at the hands of Edward's purveyors had bubbled over into angry parliamentary representations. Warned of this, Edward had directed the head of the Regency Council, Archbishop Stratford, to grant concessions if necessary. The order that all debts were to be paid in full was to be relaxed, as was the confiscation of the property of felons. But such concessions did not go far enough. Although Stratford made no secret of the king's indebtedness and at £300,000 may even have exaggerated it, both Houses of Parliament refused to rush to Edward's financial rescue. The Lords called for the abolition of higher wool duties. The Commons supported them and added a trenchant demand that, unless purveyors paid for what they took, they should be arrested as thieves. The king's purveyor-in-chief, William Wallingford, was arrested. Commissions of inquiry were set up into purveyance in various counties, Although the Lords were still prepared to see further taxation imposed, the Commons refused, preferring further consultation in the counties before any decision was made. Edward now had to face the opposition of his own Parliament in addition to that of his enemies and the half-heartedness of his allies. Edward returned to the Low Countries, still bound by the agreements of the previous autumn not to leave until all his debts were paid. That now looked a very far-off time indeed, especially since the Commons' refusal to pay a new subsidy towards the war. But Edward now proved adaptable to his changed and challenging circumstances, and entered into new negotiations with the new leaders of Flanders, in particular a wealthy merchant called Jacob van Artvelde. Van Artvelde's name remains famous to this day principally on account of his revolution. When Count Louis of Flanders professed his loyalty to his overlord, Philip of France, his people were starving, penniless and riotous. The reason was Edward's strategy of disposing of his wool at staples, designated places of trade. Flanders depended on English wool to make cloth. Starved of their raw material and seeing more and more of their fellow cloth workers drawn to England to ply their craft there, the great trading cities of Bruges, Ypres and Ghent had rapidly become places of violent dissent. First to tumble into revolution was Ghent, which saw an emergency committee of governors appointed in early January 1338. Five captains of the people, led by Jacob van Artvelde, took control of the city. Utterly ruthless and unscrupulous in his use of violence to attain his ambitions, he soon destroyed any authority Count Louis had left. Bishop Burgersch immediately saw the opportunity to gain a diplomatic advantage and quickly negotiated an agreement whereby Flanders would remain neutral during the forthcoming hostilities. Pleased with Burgersch's coup, Edward maintained good relations with the Flemings thereafter, hoping in due course to draw them also into his grand alliance and closer than some of the more reluctant princes who had already contracted to serve him. Edward's favour persuaded the Flemings that their interests were best served by supporting England. 
Van Artvelde had the idea of going further than this, using English military support to gain control of parts of Flanders lost to the French after the Battle of Kassel. He hatched a plot with Edward that he would attack Lille, Douai and Bethune while Edward's invasion was in progress. However, by the time Van Artvelde made his move, Edward's army was already returning from La Flamangrie. The withdrawal of the Allies from the battlefield relieved the pressure on Philip, and the Flemish, having declared war on the French, realised that they had jeopardised their position. Had Van Artvelde at this stage sought reconciliation with France, he would have seen his own position swept away and his life forfeit for treason against his lord, the Count of Flanders. His only option was to join the alliance completely and become an ally of England. For Edward, this had one huge implication. If the Flemings broke their allegiance to the King of France, then automatically the whole country would fall under an interdict. They would also be obliged to pay to the Pope a huge sum, two million florins, £333,333, if they were to renounce allegiance. Such sums and such risks were beyond the townsmen who had seized power from the Count. But there was a solution. If Edward were publicly to claim the title King of France, then, in maintaining loyalty to him, they would not be breaking their oaths, nor would they be obliged to pay the fine. At Brussels, in the first week of November, a great tournament was proclaimed to celebrate the end of the campaign. Once more, Edward indulged in costly gift-giving, as keen as ever to play the propaganda card of international largesse. But behind the scenes, serious negotiations were taking place about the Flemish situation and the claim to the throne of France. On the 3rd of November, Brabant and Flanders signed a treaty of mutual protection and trade. Edward was still hampered by debt, facing the opprobrium of the English commons in Parliament and worried about the situation in Scotland. He was probably compromised by the Pope, though not in the same way as the Flemings. He also had to face the fact that a public claim to the throne of France would be practically impossible to put into effect, and this carried with it the danger of ridicule for claiming something which was inappropriate and embarrassing. Nevertheless, he wanted the Flemings on his side, and he agreed a treaty. It would leave him no option but to claim France as his own inheritance. The decision was not an easy one. Just how difficult it was can be seen by reflecting on Edward's previous claims, his mother had first claimed the throne on his behalf in 1328. Edward had never renounced this, but had been forced to do homage to Philip in 1329. As he is supposed to have said in the vow of the heron, he was a young man then, and the homage was not of his own will. But he had done homage again in 1331. Not until 1337 had the question been raised again, and though debated by the King's Council and Parliament from January that year, it was only in the documents of the 6th and 7th of October that he actually styled himself King of France. By the 19th, after an intervention by the papal emissaries, he had stepped back from claiming the throne and changed his strategy to objecting to Philip claiming it. This remained the position for more than 20 months, until his letter of the 16th of July, 1339, in which he demonstrated to the cardinals why his claim was superior to Philip's but still he did not actually claim the title. There was a real reluctance, much more than a mere hesitancy. Contemporary writers stressed how much discussion and thought had gone into it. It was only when the Flemish councils insisted that they would not support Edward unless he claimed the throne that the decision was made. On the 26th of January, 1340, Edward finally claimed the title King of France. Although he had probably weighed up every consideration which had occurred to him, his advisers, his allies and his councils, he could have no idea how significant this decision would be in English history. He radically altered the focus of the war from being a mere dispute about feudal rights in Aquitaine to an argument about the sovereignty of the whole of France and its dependencies. That argument, to which French historians gave the name the Hundred Years' War in the early 19th century, did indeed continue for more than a hundred years. In fact, it may be argued it lasted for 150 years, for although the final battle was fought in 1453, peace was not agreed until 1492. It has been described as perhaps the most important war in European history. It was not until 1802 that George III finally dropped the formal title King of France after the French Revolution had destroyed the Bourbon monarchy. It is difficult to think of any other single initiative of an English king before Henry VIII's break with Rome, which had such long-lasting, widespread and dramatic consequences. 7. 
Sluss and Tournay. Before his birth, it had been predicted that Edward would wear three crowns. The prophecy probably meant the iron, silver and gold crowns of the Holy Roman Emperor, the title currently borne by Ludwig of Bavaria. Ludwig declined to give up his title, but Edward was not to be outdone. He already had a good claim to wear the sovereign crown of England and a claim to the overlordship of Scotland. To these he added the vicarial crown. But even these three were not enough. Now, in the market square of Ghent in Flanders, he went one better, exceeding the prophecy with a claim on a fourth crown, that of France. In reality, only his English title imparted genuine sovereignty. Scotland was almost lost. The Holy Roman Empire had proved an expensive and weak ally, and its count, margraves and dukes had shown themselves to be undutiful subjects. And Edward had not conquered so much as an inch of French soil. Those who witnessed his proclamation as King of France on the 26th of January, sitting on a makeshift throne in a marketplace, might have wondered if this was another gesture as devoid of power as the last. But Edward's French claim was a deeply serious move for by it he was able to accept overlordship of the Flemish people and thereby conquer a part of Philip's realm, in a manner of speaking, without having to pay or fight. In shifting his friendships away from the half-hearted German leaders towards Flanders while keeping Brabant in the alliance, he had forged a much more powerful confederacy, for Flanders and Brabant had a definite interest in English affairs through their dependence on the English wool trade. An alliance with them had the potential to last. Claiming the throne of France was a complicated business. Not least of the problems was that of which kingdom came first. Was Edward king of France and England, or England and France? To the modern listener this might appear a minor point, but to contemporaries it was of grave importance, for it could be construed that it implied precedence and subjection. In October 1337, when Edward had first contemplated adopting the French title, he had played safe issuing two sets of letters, one styled King of France and England and the other with the order reversed. After 1337, it had been easy to refer to Philip as he who calls himself King of France or our cousin Philip de Valois. But actually claiming the title was much harder. Philip himself may have contributed to the problem, mocking Edward at first for quartering the arms of England, the three leopards, with the fleur-de-lis of France. Probably before 1340, Philip pointed out in ridicule that Edward had put the arms of the little country of England in the upper Dexter Quarter, the most important position, thus relegating the arms of France, the largest and richest kingdom in Christendom, to a lesser position. Edward's decision to reverse this, putting the fleur-de-lis prominently in the upper Dexter Quarter, was a direct challenge to Philip, visually demonstrating in vivid blue and gold that he, Edward, was the heir of France. Philip's response to Edward's claim was surprise and anger. His fury reached a peak on the 8th of February 1340, when Edward's new seal arrived. That day, Edward issued a declaration to the French people, in French, declaring that, as the Flemings had recognised him as King of France, he invited them to do so too. Now Philip could see for himself, engraved on the seal, the French arms quartered with the English. When Philip read the motto, Edward, by the grace of God, King of France and England, he was aghast at his audacity. Then he learned that Edward had issued the same declaration and issued copies of his seal to all the towns in and around Flanders as well as several places in France. Realising he had been challenged and embarrassed, he ordered a search of all church doors and public places for copies of the letter and decreed that anyone found carrying a copy was to be regarded as a traitor and hanged. The Pope too was surprised and angered by Edward's claim, stating that the Sight of his letters with his new title and seal engraved with the arms of France and England caused surprise. He insisted that heirs of females could not inherit in France, despite the arguments laid before him by Edward's lawyers. He added that even if they could, there were others closer to the throne than Edward. Then he went on to castigate Edward for accepting evil counsel. In this way, he put forward a vehement protest on behalf of his homeland, with direct accusations that those who had advised Edward were untrustworthy and that the allies of France would do Edward no end of harm. The Pope's surprise at Edward's claim was probably genuine. When Edward had first claimed the title in October 1337, it was probably only the prompt intervention of the cardinals which had prevented him from sustaining the claim. 
the Pope felt that his cardinals had done enough then to dissuade Edward from adopting the title, limiting him to merely disputing Philip's right. This may have been affected through secret threats as well as more open persuasion, and at that point this may have included threats to unveil his father in Italy. Now, thanks to Nicolonius Fieschi, Edward could contain this threat. Perhaps in connection with this matter, it was Nicolonius whom Edward chose to go to to explain his actions to the Pope. Edward's position was that Philip de Valois had made no attempts to avert war, and although Edward would have been content with a modest attempt at peace, he could see no other option but force. But shortly after Nicolonius' arrival in Avignon, the French, with the help of the Pope's marshal, broke into the house in which he was staying and kidnapped him in his nightclothes. Although Benedict was very much in favour of the French at this time, he took the seizure exceptionally seriously and placed the whole of France under an interdict until Nicolonius Fieschi was set at liberty. To suspend the religious services, including burials, marriages and baptisms, confessions and privileges of an entire kingdom on account of a single offence committed in his own household against a Genoese knight acting for the English king, was extreme, to say the least. Philip complained directly about the punishment. Whatever the real purpose of Nicolonius's mission, there was more to his seizure than a violation of diplomatic immunity. He had become as important to the Pope as he was to Edward. Pope Benedict hanged all those he suspected of being involved. With regard to his marshal, who committed suicide in jail before he could be hanged, the benign pontiff had the man's body exposed on a gibbet for the birds to eat. The English were the most surprised of all by Edward's new title. Although Edward decided on a solution with regard to the order of his kingdoms, King of France and England for international affairs, and King of England and France for matters relating to the British Isles, not even he could justify having more than one coat of arms. For the English to know that their king had adopted the arms of France and set them above those of England was confusing and damaging to English pride. It was threatening too, because his decision to adopt this coat of arms and title was made without any reference or explanation to Parliament. Combined with his demands for money and his other high-handed orders since leaving England, it was beginning to seem that he gave little thought to the people of his homeland and respected their independence even less. Edward's point of view was very different. Eighteen months on the continent had broadened his horizons. Here he was, the vicar of the Holy Roman Empire, the self-proclaimed King of France and a champion of Christendom. It is easy to see why he did not relish the prospect of returning to a small island to beg for every tenth scraggy sheep off the South Downs. But although Edward's conceit, anger and frustration sometimes blinded him and made him act rashly like his self-defeating father, he had not completely lost touch with reality. His claim on France and the vicariate were only made possible by revenues derived from English land and English sheep. If he wanted to reclaim all of Gascony, including the Agenais, and defend England against any counterattack, then those sheep were important. Edward had planned to return to England early in December 1339, and had written to the Duke of Brabant arranging to leave hostages during his absence, hoping to wriggle out of the terms of his earlier financial agreement. This did not happen possibly because the Flanders negotiations took longer than expected, possibly because the Duke of Brabant refused him permission to leave, or possibly due to Edward deciding that his proclamation to the French throne had to be made while he was still in Flanders, on French sovereign territory. Whichever it was, events were now moving quickly, and even Edward was having difficulty maintaining control. Stuck in Ghent, he probably convinced himself that he could rely on past decisions of Parliament to support his adoption of the French title, and that a belated explanation would be acceptable. But his first inclination, to return to England and do his explaining up front, was the better one. In January, the Commons again refused to grant him a new subsidy. They would confer further and give him a formal answer in February. Such continued resistance from mere commoners had never before been voiced in an English Parliament, and it alarmed him. He needed to return to England straight away. Edward landed in England on the 21st of February 1340, having left his heavily pregnant queen in Ghent. Two days earlier, the commons had returned their final verdict. They had consulted with those they represented and they would grant no further taxation without concessions. Adapting quickly to the sensibilities of the English and aware that these men of the shires and towns regarded themselves as representing those who had chosen them, a new development in itself, 
Edward issued a summons for them to attend another parliament at which he could address their grievances. In order to preempt criticism over setting the arms of France above those of England, he explained in the writ of summons that it had not been his intention to prejudice the Kingdom of England by assuming the title of France. Indeed, by the 29th of March, when Parliament gathered in his presence for the first time in three years, Edward was in an attentive, concession-ready mode. He was prepared to say what the people wanted to hear and to grant whatever they demanded. Parliament had been worried by Edward's repeated high-handedness, and it assembled with a view to listing all of its many demands. Edward had only one requirement, money. If the Commons wanted reforms, they would have to agree first to finance Edward's war, for that was the bedrock of his policy, to keep the enemies of England on the defensive and in their own lands. To this, the Commons did agree. In fact, they did more than just agree, they encouraged him, and supported him in this policy by granting him every ninth sheep, fleece and sheaf for two years. Those who lived in forests and wastes and foreign merchants were to be taxed at a fifteenth of their goods. But it was stressed that it was not the wish of the king, nor of the magnates, nor of the commons, that this tax of a fifteenth should be extended to poor cottagers or those who lived by their labour. This was the first time tax relief had been granted for the poor. Parliament also granted a duty of 40 shillings on every sack of wool, every 300 sheepskins, and every last of leather exported. This generosity permitted Parliament to ask for much in return. Liberties were confirmed, debts to the Crown were pardoned, and delays in the administration of justice were ordered to be dealt with. The use of standard English weights and measures was implemented throughout the kingdom. The method of appointing of sheriffs, widely hated officers of state, was reformed. The Walton Ordinances, which Edward had ordered when leaving England in 1338, were wholly repealed. The outdated custom of Englishry was dispensed with forever. Purveyance was dealt with, as well as rights of presentation to church benefices. A permanent baronial committee, appointed by Parliament, was established to oversee all royal taxation and expenditure. Lastly, the question of the subjection of England to the Kingdom of France was firmly and unambiguously settled. Edward undertook that the realm of England never was or ought to be in the obedience of the kings of France, and that our realm of England and the people of the same shall never be made obedient to us, nor our heirs and successors as kings of France. This process of creating legislation, responding to social demands in return for extraordinary taxation, was effectively selling laws. As a result, it has frequently been attacked as a haphazard legislative programme, it certainly suggests that Edward had no domestic legislative agenda of his own, but we have to ask whether a responsive approach to law-giving was a negative thing. After all, most modern laws are passed in reaction to changing social circumstances. In April 1340, Edward was in no position to know what was required in England. He had been overseas for almost two years. All he knew was that he had to restore his standing in Parliament so the relatively free hand he gave to representatives to set the legislative agenda was not simply due to his need for taxation. It follows that he cannot be credited with the reforms of 1340 except in one important respect. He allowed these statutes to be enrolled. For this, his contemporaries were prepared to give him some credit. They knew it was something his father would not have done. On the 16th of April 1340... Edward was jousting at Windsor Castle. Unexpectedly, a messenger arrived from Flanders. Five days earlier, two of Edward's closest companions, the Earls of Salisbury and Suffolk, had left the main army and set off to spy out the defences of Lille. They had with them thirty men-at-arms and some mounted archers. They were spotted, however, and as they moved around the town, they were gradually surrounded. When the garrison closed in, they were trapped with their backs to the moat. They had drawn their weapons and fought furiously even until dark. But when sixty or more men lay dead on the ground, the last seven were overpowered. One, a renegade French knight, was dragged over to a nearby tree and hanged there and then. Both earls and the remaining four men-at-arms were taken captive. Salisbury and Suffolk, his friends, Montague and Ufford. To Edward, this must have come as a shock. But there was worse news to follow. The Earl of Salisbury had been his principal commander in the Low Countries, and his capture flung the whole region into disarray. 
the French destroyed the towns of Haspra and Escodervre and many villages in Hainault. In May, they attacked Valenciennes itself, the capital of Hainault, burning and destroying everything in the vicinity. Sir Walter Manny's brother, Giles, was captured and killed. An Allied attack on Tournai failed. Incursions into England from Scotland meant that now, unable to spare troops to defend the border, Edward had to sue for a lasting peace in Scotland against his wishes. In addition to all this, Philip's fleet was so strong that Edward had to prohibit the export of wool for fear of it being stolen by the French. To Edward, there was only one solution. He had to return to France as quickly as possible and lead an attack on the French army. If he did not, Flanders would be lost to him, and his wife too, still a hostage in Ghent, recovering from giving birth to John, later known as John of Gaunt, Ghent. Edward needed ships, particularly the large Mediterranean galleys which Philip had been able to requisition from the Genoese. He wrote to the Pope exhorting him to make sure Nicolonius Fieschi was released from prison so he could arrange for the commissioning of vessels. He also wrote to the Venetians, asking them specifically for forty galleys. It seems that Edward was just beginning to panic. In his letter to the Venetians, he was at pains to point out why they should supply him with galleys and not Philip. He explained the cause of the war, that Philip had occupied his lands in France, and added that, On this account, King Edward calls upon the said Philip to fight a pitched battle. But for the avoidance of reproach hereafter, on account of so much Christian bloodshed, he, at the commencement of the war offered by letter to settle the dispute either by single combat or a band of six or eight, or any number he pleased on either side, or that, if he be the true king of France as asserted by him, he should stand the test of braving ravenous lions who would not harm a true king, or perform the miracle of touching for the evil, if unable, to be considered unworthy of the kingdom of France. It all sounds very self-confident, bragging even. Edward was portraying himself as a leader prepared to risk his life for his political beliefs. But on reflection, it is all a little bit too bombastic. These, after all, were very distant and very dignified correspondents on the Adriatic. This need to justify himself personally in a request for ships to a distant state was inappropriate. This especially so when one remembers that Philip was much older than Edward. Edward's need to show that he was a brave and divinely chosen king, brave enough to challenge Philip to single combat, protected by God from the hunger of beasts, hints at a self-conscious need to convince others of his greatness. Such a protest of bravery suggests self-doubt. The reason for Edward's worry is not hard to find. His whole strategy was collapsing, economically and militarily. On the 27th of May, Edward arranged for his son again to act as regent during his absence overseas. The Council of Regency was to be headed by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Earl of Huntingdon. But they had only been appointed for a few days when the Archbishop heard from a messenger of the Count of Gilderland that the French were gathering their ships in a great fleet in the Channel to trap Edward when he returned to Flanders. Genoese, Picard, Spanish and French vessels were all drawing together to present an impenetrable wall. Philip had decided that Edward was the cause of, and the solution to, his problems. To capture him now became his highest priority. The Archbishop conscientiously told Edward straight away, but in so doing he made the mistake of telling him what he should and should not do. There were too many ships, he explained, for Edward to consider attacking them. He must remain in England. At this, Edward's already frayed nerves gave way. He exploded in rage at the Archbishop, accusing him of being against the war and dictating to him. Faced with this onslaught, the Archbishop immediately resigned his office of Chancellor. Edward coldly accepted his resignation and called two of his most trusted naval advisers to him, Robert Morley, Admiral of the Northern Fleet, and John Crabbe. They confirmed what the Archbishop had said, saying it was too dangerous to cross the Channel. Edward was furious. You and the Archbishop are in league, preaching me a sermon to stop me crossing. Let me tell you this, I will cross, and you who are frightened where there is no fear, you may stay at home. The two naval advisers then said that if the king were to cross, then he and those who crossed with him would be facing almost certain death. But they would follow, even if it cost them their lives. The chronicler who recorded the above lines was probably trying to accentuate Edward's bravery. However, he did not need to alter the facts to portray Edward as a brave man. Edward was all the braver because he did what he did despite his fear. 
the inappropriate stresses in the letter to Venice, his lack of money, elements of political misjudgment, his shortage of troops, his giving up of the Scottish war, his admission that the seas were too dangerous to risk the export of wool, the capture of two of his best friends by the French and the risk of losing his wife and son at Ghent, all suggest that now he was under extreme pressure. Given this, it is truly impressive that Edward not only gathered a fleet, but instilled in his men the belief that they were sailing to Flanders to engage and defeat the enemy. That he was able to inspire them, despite knowing the scale of the task facing them, is astonishing. There were 200 ships and galleys in the enemy fleet at the mouth of the river Zvin, with 19,000 fighting men aboard. Two of the French ships, the Christopher and the Edward, had once been the pride of his own navy. He himself had only about 120 to 147 ships, and they were mostly much smaller than the large galleys and warships of the French fleet, and fewer than 12,000 fighting men when he gathered them all at Harwick. On the 20th of June, one week late, Edward stepped aboard his largest remaining ship, the Thomas, and received his new great seal from the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Archbishop apologised to Edward. Edward accepted the apology and reinstated him as Chancellor, but the prelate, having thought over his position, would not accept. He was too old, he said. He could have added that he was too old to argue politics with a 28-year-old king who annually made a pilgrimage to see the point of the sword which had killed Thomas Becket, an earlier Archbishop of Canterbury. For a second time, Edward accepted his resignation. He appointed the Archbishop's brother, Robert Stratford, instead. Then, resolved to fight the French, he gave the order for his fleet to sail towards Flanders. The ships of the fleet all came together over the next two days, keeping close. Small wooden vessels bobbed up and down around Edward's cog, tiny by comparison with some of the vessels they would be facing. Nineteen of the French ships, including a few giant galleys hired from the Genoese, were said to have been larger than anything hitherto seen in the Channel. Late on the next day, Friday the 23rd of June, as the English approached the Zvin estuary, they all saw for themselves. There was no more arrogant bragging or self-delusion. Every man in the fleet could see what stood between them and their purpose. Masts like a forest rose up before them in the evening light. The ship's prows were all armoured with wooden castles, one after the other, all in a row, totally blocking the mouth of the river's vin. Edward gave the order for the fleet to drop anchor and wait for the night. The next few hours cannot have been easy for him or his men, trying to sleep with the movement of the ship, each half listening for a surprise night attack. No sound but the waves lapping at the side of the boat and the low voices of those talking about strategies for the morning. No refuge from the thoughts of the danger that lay ahead. For the women Edward had brought to attend to his wife and newborn son, it must have been a troubling experience. They knew the horrific consequences if they were captured. Aware of their fears and vulnerability, the king ordered them to be kept well back from the battle. In the morning, Edward saw that the enemy ships had not moved overnight. As the sun came up, he and his men waited for them to leave the estuary to sail towards him. He probably hoped that they would do what the mounted knights at Duplin Moor had done, charge into the sights of his archers on the flanks. But the French did not move. Their greatest and largest ships were placed at the front, defensively. If Edward wanted to land in Flanders, he would have to take the fight to them. Still, he waited. It was the 24th of June, the Feast of St. John the Baptist. Facing the French, the English archers would have looked into the sun, so Edward continued to wait, close to the coast. He knew that if he sailed north, the French could sail between him and the midday sun. Only in the early afternoon, when he knew that the sun would be behind his ships for the rest of the day, and the wind and the tide were with him, did he give the signal to advance. The first of the three lines of English ships sailed forward, the Thomas in their centre, with Edward on board and with the new royal banner of England and France resplendent in red, blue and gold above him. Slowly, he came within arrow shot of the huge French ships. The French and Genoese crossbowmen waited. The English loosed their arrows. The greater range and the faster speed of the English longbows swept the decks of the French vessels. The crossbowmen were powerless to put up a line of fire. Even with the rising and falling of the boats, the English arrows tore through the lines of men on the French vessels. Realising that the impetus lay with them, the English sailed their ships into the French line and hurled their grappling hooks over the sides, drawing them together. 
The French responded, sending galleys forward to pick off some of the leading English ships. Four great galleys, armed with springalds, giant catapults, sailed towards one English ship, the Oliver, and fired large amounts of stone shot into its sails and across the decks of the vessel. Soon, many aboard the Oliver were killed or wounded. But Edward gave orders to respond to the challenge, and several English ships reached the beleaguered boat, driving off the galleys. Over the next few hours, it became clear that to judge the armies by the number of ships and men had been misleading. The first line of the French fleet blocked the second line from attacking, and they blocked the third line. All the English ships massed in an attack on the leading French vessels. The men who now rushed from the English onto the French and Spanish ships were hardened fighters. Foremost among them were the Earl of Huntingdon, Sir Walter Manny and John Crabbe, men used to warfare at sea as well as on land. The men they commanded had marched with Edward against the Scots. They had marched with Edward against Philip at La Flamangrie. They had thought, talked and dreamed of war for the last ten years. Now, at last, they saw that a momentous victory was within reach. It was as if Edward was a sacred leader who could only lead them to victory like Alexander. He stood on the deck of the Thomas, shouting orders, undaunted even when a French spear struck him through his thigh. Very soon, the Christopher had a grappling iron hurled onto its deck, and as the English archers on an adjacent vessel let loose volleys of arrows to pin down the Genoese crossbowmen and to curb the sailors throwing down stones from the mastheads, the English men-at-arms scrambled aboard. A great shout went up from the English when they saw the French flag torn down from the Christopher. It was all the inspiration they needed. Late that afternoon, when the foremost English vessels broke through the first